All right, tonight's message, this morning's message is titled, To Fight or Not to Fight, Choosing Unity. Uh, and we're going to go over a whole bunch of scripture, uh, but we're going to focus on 1 Corinthians 1, verses 11 through 15. John, if you would like to jump up, you can go ahead and pray us in. Uh, for those of you who are following in your Bibles, we're going to be using the NASB as, uh, as our translation. So if you want to follow uh, in NASB, that would be the easiest for you to do. John, can you pray us in? God, thank you for this day. Thank you for our lives, God. I uh, pray for the Ukraine. Um, God, I pray for uh, all the other people suffering in our world. God, uh, we thank you that um, we are safe here in America. Uh, God, we thank you for the blessings that you have given us. We pray that this week we would focus on you and what you want us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right. So we're going to watch a, uh, oh, I'm sorry. Let me, let me take back a step. Let's go ahead and have last Sunday supper. And I thought this was a great time to talk about this particular topic. Um, you'll notice we try to do the Lord's Supper a little differently each time. So you can get a little different flavor of how you might do it when you're by yourself or with your family. Um, because there's no one way to do it. The truth is, it's really about remembering Jesus, remembering what he did for us. Um, and there's no right way or wrong way to do this. You don't have to pray a particular passage of scripture or something like that. So what I thought I'd talk about today, because we're going to be talking about unity, um, is tell you that there's three different kind of schools of thought on how this, the Lord's Supper or communion works. So I thought I'd kind of let you know those three different ways so you had an idea of what different um, Christian groups believe. So the first group I want to talk about, then the, the biggest group that believes this is the Roman Catholic Church. They believe in something called transubstantiation. So what that means is that when we put this little wafer in our mouths. So the Roman Catholic Church, and again, I'm not saying every Roman Catholic believes this. I'm saying that the, the church's defined belief is that when they put the wafer in their mouth, that it actually turns into the flesh of Jesus Christ, that it actually transfigures itself and becomes Jesus. Okay, so that's one school of thought. And they believe that when you drink the wine, that it actually becomes the blood of Christ. Okay, supernaturally, that's what they believe happens. There's another school of thought, and it's called consubstantiation. So if you've been around for a little bit, you know that I have a friend who is an Anglican priest, and the Anglicans believe in consubstantiation. So they don't believe, like the Catholics do, that the wafer turns into the flesh, and the blood turns into, the, or the wine turns into the blood. They believe that... Christ himself is present in the wafer and present in the juice. And so when you take in the bread and you take in the wine, that the presence of Jesus is actually in the sacraments, actually in the ingesting of the food. Does that make sense? So they don't believe it actually turns into Jesus, but they believe that Jesus, his spirit is in the act and actually enters your body. Okay. We, of course, are Baptists, and Baptists believe a little differently. We believe that taking the Lord's Supper is symbolic, okay? We don't believe that the wafer turns into the flesh. We don't believe that Jesus himself is in the wafer. What we do believe is that it's a symbol 
it's an outward expression of our belief that Jesus sacrificed himself for us, and it's a remembrance of that sacrifice, all right? So three different schools of thought, and that's one of the reasons you find that many of the Protestant denominations like Baptists, we call it the Lord's Supper as opposed to communion, right? And, and you'll hear me every once in a while, I'll call it communion just because I'm used to calling it that, um, but communion usually refers to one of the first two styles of belief versus the Lord's Supper, which is the third. So we're going to go ahead, if you would get your wafer ready, I'm going to go ahead and pray for us now, and we will take the Lord's Supper. So, Father, thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus. We can't, we can't enter into your presence. We can't enter into the kingdom that you have prepared for us without our Savior, Jesus Christ. And right now, we remember how his body was broken for us. You may take the wafer. And while Jesus was at his last supper, literally, he told his disciples that the wine that was in the cup represented the blood that he was about to shed on the cross. So, Lord, we thank you that you voluntarily, willingly let them shed your blood, that they, they took your blood from you. And because of that, we have been cleansed. Because of that, we can enter into your presence. You may take the cup. All right, amen. And by the way, if you have any further questions about uh, communion versus Lord's Supper, you're always welcome to reach out to John Jr. or myself through the website, call us, text us, whatever method of communication you like to use, reach out to us. We'd love to have more conversation if you want to have that conversation. All right, we're gonna watch a quick video. H.V. Uh, Charles uh, is part of Ligonier Ministries. He's a Baptist pastor um, in Florida, and this is a quick video. I just want to listen to his words uh, as we get started. We proclaim the gospel with confidence that this message of salvation that reconciles the holy God to sinful man is also able to reconcile man to man. We proclaim this message, but oftentimes we don't see it fleshed out in our lives, in our communities, and in our congregations. And I really think it is because we may proclaim one thing from the pulpit and then lay down the sufficiency of the Word of God and the testimony of Christ for some other means of trying to create reconciliation or to develop spiritual unity. But I believe the gospel is not just to be preached. It cannot just be preached and then obscured by something else to supplement it to work. The same gospel truths must be believed, must be defended, must be lived, must be practiced, must be exemplified in how we treat one another. I really believe the difference that the gospel we proclaim makes is when we not 
just proclaim it, but that we live it as light and salt, as we live it in our relationship with others, as we live it in obedience to this truth, reflecting our faith in Jesus Christ. I believe that the gospel that is to be proclaimed faithfully is to be demonstrated faithfully in the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, simple and to the point. Charles is making the point um, that we can demonstrate the gospel through unity with one another. And that's our topic today. We're going to be talking about unity, but specifically unity within the body of Christ, unity between believers, okay? And we're, so that is different than unity with people who don't believe what we believe. What we're really focusing on today is unity with other Christians, okay? So we're gonna start this journey talking about unity by looking at division, because quite frankly, division obviously besides being the opposite of unity, it is usually the quickest way to spot when folks aren't unity because division exists. And in the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians, his first letter, we call it First Corinthians, um, in verse 10, Paul starts out by saying, hey, it is so important to be unified, okay? And he, he starts out this section of the letter by just really reinforcing, it's really, really important to you guys that you stay unified. And then he lets them know what he's heard about, starting in verse 11. For I have been informed concerning you, my brothers and sisters, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am with Paul, or I am with Apollos, or I am with Cephas, or I am with Christ. Has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I'm thankful that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one would say that you were baptized in my name. Paul is already dealing with what we would call denominationalism. They were already in the church starting to divide themselves based on the teachings of a certain person. And in most cases, they were probably very, very, if not exactly the same, very, very similar. Apollos' message was probably extremely similar to Paul's. They worked together for a, a pretty extended period of time. It's unlikely there were any major, you know, real kind of doctrinal divides, but people started following and thinking of themselves as following an individual human, not just being part of the church of Jesus Christ, okay? And so this is the beginning of denominations being set up. And the scary thing is, we go for a long time in history with pretty much one denomination, only one significant church. There's some little offshoots, but there really aren't that many. But by the time we get to the year 1800, there are 500 different denominations. But in the last 200 years, that number has absolutely exploded. And then depending on whose information you look at, the answer is probably somewhere between 
33,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,043,
and the one who eats does so with regard to the Lord. For he gives thanks to God, and the one who does not eat, it is for the Lord that he does not eat. And he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. For if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Now there, Paul, when he's talking about one thinks differently about the day than another, he's talking about the holy days in the Jewish tradition, all right? Days like Passover, okay? So there was, now we've also gotten into arguments about, well, since I'm a Christian, I don't have to follow the feast days anymore. I don't have to observe the holy days. And what Paul's saying is, stop fighting about whether someone observes a holy day or not. If they observe it, they're doing it for God. It's okay. And if they're not observing it, they're not observing it because they think it's the right thing to do for God. Either way, don't fight about it. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's what Paul's talking about. In verse 10, he goes on, he says, but as for you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you as well, why do you regard your brother or sister with contempt? For we will all appear before the judgment seat of God, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise to God. So then each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let's not judge one another anymore but rather determine this not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother or sister's way. So what Paul really is saying here is that, look, there are, there are some things that are worth fighting for, but there are some things that are not worth fighting for. And in this case, food and celebrating a holiday, not worth fighting for, okay? It's okay if your brother or sister in Christ observes their faith differently than you do. Okay, that's what Paul is saying. And so here's my next question for you to consider. Is there a denomination that you struggle with regarding unity? Okay, you, you think they're going to heaven. Okay, this is not like the last question. It's similar, but the last question was, do you think they're lost? This question is, do you struggle with unity with a specific denomination? Yeah, you believe they're going to heaven, but the way they behave, the way they worship God, offends you somehow. It makes you angry, makes you nervous. There's something about the way they worship God that bothers you. Okay, that's my next question for you to consider. Now, I want to jump over to Ephesians. And we're going to read Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 6. And I think we should pay special attention to this little passage of scripture because it's titled be like christ all right so if you've got a title above this passage it says be like christ maybe we should pay attention to being like christ all right ephesians 4 therefore i the prisoner of the lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness with patience, bearing with one another in love, 
being diligent to keep the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope in your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So being like Christ is being unified in the body of Christ. That's what Paul was saying to the Ephesians. But it's okay to reason with one another over the things we don't agree with. It doesn't mean we have to ignore those things. We just need to do it the way Paul said to. He said, with humility and gentleness and patience. He didn't say, don't tell the truth. He didn't say, don't talk to your Christian brothers and sisters about what you believe. He said, do it kindly. Does that make sense? Okay? Think about Proverbs 27, 17. It says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. We learn from one another. We gain wisdom through one another. The truth is, one of God's best tools to teach us about himself is his other followers. We're supposed to talk to each other about who God is because it helps all of us understand him better. So what we're really doing here is we're breaking apart the non-essential doctrine from the essential doctrine, okay? So when I say non-essential, I mean this doctrine doesn't affect whether or not you go to heaven or hell, all right? So I chose this picture. Obviously, this is a picture of an infant baptism. And I chose this picture because that baby is just beautiful, right? But think about infant baptism. My friend, the Anglican priest, believes that infants should be baptized. Us Baptists, we believe that you don't get baptized until after you've made a profession of faith. No one's going to hell because they baptize an infant. Does that make sense? We believe differently, but it's not a matter of salvation. They don't even believe it's a matter of salvation in and of itself. They don't believe that just because you were baptized, you will end up in heaven. Okay? So it's not essential to life and death. It's non-essential doctrine. It's important, but it's not essential. Okay? Communion versus Lord's Supper, that's another one of those. If I take the wine, and I believe it's symbolic. If they take the wine and believe it turns into Christ's blood itself, it affects neither of our salvations, does it? Okay, so that's why it's non-essential. The sign gifts are another one. If you believe that the sign gifts died off with the apostles, I believe they didn't. Neither of us is going to end up in hell because of that belief, okay? So that's why it's non-essential doctrine. Now, I want to take this whole non-essential doctrine thing and set it aside for a moment. And let's look at 1 John 4, uh, 1 John 4, 1 through 6. We're kind of shifting gears here. 1 John 4, 1. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. This is really important. Listen to this part coming up. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. 
Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and now is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. The one who knows God listens to us. The one who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. All right, now I want to make clear here, the Apostle John, as he wrote this, is warning us about false doctrine. He's saying, whoa, now you guys gotta be very, very careful about people who are spreading false doctrine. But Paul just said not to fight about false doctrine, didn't he? But we're talking about a different thing, okay? I wanna reread verse two. By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. John is saying, test the spirits, test the doctor, test what you're hearing against that. Is this person claiming that Jesus Christ came in the flesh, that God came down and became a man or not? This is essential doctrine. Okay, that's the sidestep we've taken. We're not talking about infant baptism anymore. Now we're talking about, is Jesus really God? That's a whole different level of importance. And Mormons, for example, do not believe. Mormons do not believe that Jesus is God. They do not believe in the Trinity. They do not believe that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are one God. The Jehovah's Witnesses do not believe that either. That's why they're not Christians, okay? But this, what, what um, John talks about here, believing that Jesus came from heaven, became a man, Catholics believe that, Baptists believe that, Episcopalians believe that, Methodists, Lutherans, all the other denominations you can probably think of believe that Jesus is God. That's what makes them Christians. I've heard many Baptists, for example, and that's our group, say, well, Catholics aren't Christians. That's just simply not true. They proclaim the same Jesus we do, okay? And I've heard Catholics say the same thing, that if you don't, you're not part of the Catholic Church, you're not part of the true church. That's simply not true, okay? For those of us who have ever said that, we just got that part wrong. But that's what separates essential and non-essential doctrine because if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that he actually is God, you're not going to heaven. Okay, now we are talking about life and death. We are talking about the difference between heaven and hell and their essential doctrine includes some, some basics here. One is that the deity of Christ, that Jesus is God. Also that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven, that he's the only way to the Father. That's what we call atonement, that he was a sacrifice for us. He's the gateway 
for us to get to the Father. Jesus is the only gateway. That's essential doctrine. The death and resurrection of Jesus, that he actually became a man, he literally lived a life, he died and was resurrected. That is essential doctrine if you don't believe that, okay? You can't get past the gatekeeper, Jesus, to get to heaven. That's what the scripture says. Salvation by grace through faith. That the only way to get to heaven, you can't work your way to heaven. The only way you can get to heaven is by believing that Jesus really is God. Now, some of you are going, whoa, 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 that's not what the Catholics believe. Actually, they add to it. Okay, so a, a, a person who follows to the letter, the Roman Catholic faith, would say that, yes, you must believe in Jesus. You must believe in the doctrine of grace, which is what we just talked about. And then you go through the process of the sacraments. In other words, it's faith and works. But there is, there is no one, there might be individuals, but the Catholic Church does not believe that you can get there by works alone. You have to have faith in Jesus, okay? So they add to it, but again, they're still Christians. I personally don't think they're correct about that part. Either way, neither of us is going to hell because of it. That makes sense, <sighs> okay? So they're still in our camp, even though they believe differently than we do as Baptists, the Trinity, that there is one God and that one God has three persons, that is essential doctrine, okay? And then this one, which may be a little harder maybe to wrap your brain about, but the, the gospel of love, the idea that your primary purpose is to love God and therefore love others, that is essential doctrine as well. And the easiest thing to do is think of it as a litmus test. If you don't have a love for God and if you don't have a love for others, this should be a red flag. You do not have the Holy Spirit in you because that's what the Holy Spirit does is he gives you a love for others, okay? So basically, what these two different followers of Jesus, Paul and John, were talking about, Paul said, hey, there are certain things, let them go. Talk about them, reason with others about them, but don't get hung up on them and certainly don't fight about them. But there are other times when you need to put your foot down, okay? If someone says, well, Jesus isn't the only way to heaven, you need to defend that position. And the reason you need to defend that position is if that person goes to their grave believing that and they're not following Jesus, they will not go to heaven. You need to fight for them. Does that make sense? All right. So how big a deal is this unity thing? I want you to listen now to the words of Jesus himself. This is recorded in John 17. All right. And Jesus is speaking to God the Father about his followers. Jesus is talking to God the Father about us, all right? So this is John, sorry, this is John 17. Is that the one that's on the paper? John 17, verses 22 and 23. The glory which you have given me, I have also given to them, so that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and you loved them just as you loved 
me. That they would be perfected in unity. That's a big word. Perfected? This is a big deal. Jesus, this is not just a eh, little side note. Hey, this is how they will be perfected. This unity. Why? So that the world will know that you sent me. Let me paraphrase. Jesus, Jesus just said that the world will know that he is God when we are unified. Wow, that's a big responsibility. What happens to the world if they don't know that Jesus is God? They don't just not go to heaven. They go to hell. This unity thing is a big deal. Jesus is saying, this is how they will know because you're unified. Are we unified? Can you imagine if we were unified? Do you realize that we would be the largest people group on earth? There are more people who profess to be Christians than any other religion. There are more people who profess to be Christians than any other race, creed, color, nationality. Here in the United States, we would make up, if, if there was a Christian political party, it would be larger than Republican or Democrat. Can you imagine what we could accomplish if we were actually unified? And Jesus is saying, hey, the way they're going to know that you're different is because you're unified. Is our world unified? Is our country unified? Could we be any more divided? What would it look like to the world that even though we believe differently, we were unified? That would be different, wouldn't it? Paul says something similar in Ephesians 4. And remember last week I told you this passage is going to work its way back in this week. Ephesians 4, starting 11. And he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's where we stopped last week. Now we continue into verse 13. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Paul is saying that our individual, individual and collective maturity is based on our unity. This is a big deal, right? You have not arrived in your spiritual journey. You have not become spiritually mature until you're unified with the body of Christ. And shouldn't we be so thankful that we are part of that body? I mean, think about it. God himself, the God who breathes out stars, the, the God who created everything we see, has said, you can be part of my body. We should be so awestruck by that opportunity that we should not let the little things keep us from unity. The devil's really good at dividing us. So what does this spiritual unity look like? And I think it was really fitting that we shared the Lord's Supper today because Jesus told us what this unity would look like and he told us at his last supper. Literally, he's telling 
his disciples, I'm about to leave you, okay? He's about to be murdered and he knows it and he's given them his last instructions and in John chapter 13, verse 34, this is what he says to them. He says, I am giving you a new commandment that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. You can't love someone that you're not in unity with. Can you? Pretty hard to love someone that you're divided with, that you're quarreling with. There are times that we need to let it go. There are times we need to stand for what's right because someone's salvation is in jeopardy. But this is what Jesus wants us to do. He wants us to be unified with one another and love one another. So let's pray for that. Father, first of all, thank you for thank you for the ability to be unified. If you tell us that all of us being unified is important, then that means it's possible. Lord, it seems completely overwhelming. There are 43,000 maybe separate factions that believe differently about your son. We're not unified, but your scripture tells us it's possible. So Lord, help us to know what to do. We, obviously, we only can affect ourselves and our little circle of influence, but help each and every one of us to take the steps that you want us to take, to be unified with our brothers and sisters around us, to be unified in our church and with the other denominations in our community. Lord, let us take up the mantle. Let us be the first to walk toward them in unity. Let us build the bridge that will usher in your kingdom here on earth. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. All right, so what? Now what? Are you practicing Christian unity? Uh, do you know when to draw that line in the sand? And do you know when to simply agree to disagree? Maybe it's time for you to experience unity with Christ for the very first time. Maybe that's where you are ready to fully commit to Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. If that's the case, please reach out to us uh, here at Steeples Church. Talk to your home group leader. Um, hit us up on the website. Text us. Uh, we want to help you take your next steps. Home groups, download the message guide so that you can answer the call to action questions. You know, today we, we learned about the, the importance of unity within the church. Next week, we're going to find out how you can find your calling in Jesus. What has God called you to do? So it's going to be fun. Don't miss it. Thank you for being part of the Steeple List Church family. We love you. We'll see you next week.